evening, Mr. Bond fans, and welcome once again to Diminishing Returns. <laughs> And welcome back to Diminishing Returns, where we are continuing. Welcome back, where have we been? <laughs> where we we are continuing our uh, Bondathon that has been ongoing for what nearly three years now, four years. Ooh, yeah, four. I think. Fucking Good hell. lord. Mm. <laughs> anyway, I am Calvin Dyson, and with me are Alan, hello, and Sol, hello. And today we're going to be talking about License to Kill, the second and final Timothy Dalton Bond film, uh, and a show that I think has been many years in the making, uh, because, Sol, you have finally seen License to Kill, a film that I often cited as being one of my least favourite Bond films. (laughs) Oh, really? And a film with which I think you got lots of videos of me very drunk, sort of ranting about how much I hated it and (laughs) Timothy Dalton. This Uh, was on my Facebook history very recently, actually. Oh, did they? So it must be like 10 years ago, recently. So no, that was uh, that was about this film, was it? Interesting. I believe so. Yeah, yeah. And you had no idea oh. what I was ranting and raving about. <laughs> and now, finally, all these years on, we're going to sit down and uh, have a conversation about it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's but, interesting. Uh, but before we talk about that, can we talk about No Time to Die a bit? Oh, because before we started recording, you were telling us how you've booked your tickets. Yes. But I read an article this morning that the James Bond fans were unionising to pressure, uh, is it Eon Entertainment, whoever? Yes, yes. Yeah, uh, to hold the film back because of the coronavirus. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Because they don't, because they're worried, they're worried it'll harm the film's box office because fewer people will be going to the cinema because they're anticipating the virus to be like peaking around April. (laughs) Yes. yes. So, in order to the to make sure the film gets really good box office, they want to hold it back to midsummer. Now, did you, did you find this so amusing? <laughs> I think it just says a lot about the sort of person who calls himself a diehard James Bond fan that they, <laughs> that they care about the box office of their, uh, you know, well, as, as you if Eon aren't. The- Box office? Well, well, oh right, yeah, no, I see what you mean, yeah. yeah I mean, I, I do insofar as, you know, if if a film I love and I'm hoping for there to be sequels and it's not a done deal and it flops, I might be a bit like, well, that's a shame, I would have liked a sequel to that. But if it's something like James Bond, it's going to take more than a flop to, to kill it off. And wow. I think the producers are intelligent enough to be able to go... Oh well, you know, coronavirus. Rather than, well, they just don't like this film. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's quite timely that you've uh, brought this conversation up just as we're about talking about *License to Kill*, a film that could mm, have quite killer. easily, yeah, could have been um, back in the day. Uh, so this film did badly, did it at the box office? 
Yes. I think the only one that did worse is uh, The Man with the Golden Gun. When adjusted for inflation, of course. But that has to be, presumably, because the previous film, The Living Daylights, was so terrible that everyone went, <laughs> oh, God, I'm not, I'm not going to see that shit again. Mm. <laughs> uh, that, that, that's uh, entirely possible. It was also released in the summer of 1989. After this, they've never released a Bond film in summer before. It was a very crowded time. I think Batman was released around the same time, and that one was sort of like the big film mm. of the of the mm. moment. Uh, I think Ghostbusters 2 was out around this point. Uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. There was a lot of other stuff, and I guess that Timothy Dalton wasn't established enough in the role to be a big draw to people at that point. Mm. Also, the tone of the film has shifted quite significantly, I think, from the last one. Uh, all of a sudden, oh, now yeah, it's yeah, rated yeah. 15 in the UK, it's PG-13 in America. Um, and, what was it before? Uh, PG's. Really? Yeah, yeah, or, or whatever the, you know, 60s, 70s equivalent of, like, a general family audiences are fine watching this uh, rating. I mean, that's was. everything wrong with society right there, isn't it? You know? <laughs> it was a different time. James Bond shoots someone. Oh, it's too violent. It's a 15. James Bond rapes a woman and, like, makes her turn straight. PG. Suitable for all. <laughs> doesn't doesn't Timothy Dalton swear at one point? Um, yeah. We, we've heard swearing in Bond before. You may remember Mrs. Bell's holy shit from uh, Live and Let Die. <laughs> yeah, I might remember that. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I honestly... I, I mean, this probably says more about me and my my desensitization, but I it, it didn't even register that that was a thing to me that like they swore in any of these or they didn't swear or yeah, I think you're desensitized to it. <laughs> Your foul uh, mouth. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the thing that really bumped up the uh, rating for this is the acts of cruelty that we see and the drugs. It's all of a sudden about drug Ooh. dealing and uh, yeah, yeah. Alan, I'm assuming that you've seen this before. Uh, I mean, if I, I don't know if I have to be honest with you. If I have, it was so long ago that it was not. Uh, it was like watching the first time. Anyway, I had no memory of it. Uh, so yeah, I was coming to this one pretty fresh. Okay, fr- fr- fresh. Mm, uh, did fresh you, and so clean. Before we get into the film itself, I just want to ask about the tone. Like, did it? jar with you uh because i coming right off of uh the living daylights which i think we all kind of agreed sort of even though it was timothy Dalton in the role and he brought something different it was very much carrying on the tone that roger moore had set previously i i I can't say i noticed any huge change in tone um i i thought the pacing and and the the way the film sort of the film language being used felt a lot more easy to enjoy um Mm. it just felt much more kind of what i spoke about with um a view to a kill it it just it felt much more of a modern bond film less of a slog that you kind of have to force yourself to sit through but i mean tonally Mm. i don't think i noticed much difference between this i I did yeah i mean i i could tell it was it was a slightly darker, bond, sterner Bond, which suits mm. Timothy Dalton. I think it was that was what was coming through in the previous film, anyway. I mean, to um, a point. 
It's still using a fucking shark pulley system to kill henchmen. It's still fucking ludicrous nonsense. Well, that was it. I mean, it, well, actually, that jumped out at me because, uh, I mean, yeah, I thought this was a darker tone, but it was justified within its own narrative that Bond had gone rogue and this time it's personal, you know. So yeah. that's, I was okay with that. Bond had gone off the deep end a little bit. And mm. and that and that informed the the style, so I, it didn't feel out of place. But yeah, it was different. Uh, to be honest, if anything, I preferred it. Mm. Uh, we'll get on. We'll get on to that. Um, but yeah, but then so then when they do like pull open the trap door and there's bloody sharks, it is like <laughs> whoa, we're going back to the sixties here. What's going on? This is like old school Bond. But then I mean that shark ninjas a ninja just comes out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> so that was what felt out of place because it was just like oh I thought we were doing something a bit different here and yeah. then we're going like it was like oh we we, we 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 don't want to commit too far so let's just throw in some really like yeah. Connery stuff but but I think that's kind of what I mean it, it, it feels like a gradual transition that's taking place rather than they've just gone let's make a dark Bond film and it's suddenly a, a complete change of tone this just kind of feels like a, a notch or two more dark than the previous film, which was a notch or two darker than the one before it. It, it, it. None of it feels drastically cut from a different cloth to me. Hmm. That's interesting, because to me, it, I think it really does, especially compared to the previous one. I, I think if Timothy Dalton had come straight out of the door with a significantly different tone. Maybe people might have gelled with it more. I I, I don't know. Uh, they're an odd double bill, I think, to watch together. Mm. Not that either of you ever would. But <laughs> it's fine. I did. I noticed they still they they not they're not committing to a proper villain, like a proper kind of cartoon Bond villain. Mm. It's missing again. It's better than the last one, but uh, it's like a. Cuban drug lord, Colombian or something. I, I'm not quite yeah. sure. <laughs> Robert Darby really is Fran Sanchez. Yeah, I mean it's different from the <laughs> last one in that we have one very clear main villain. Uh, yeah, and and he and he is kind of maniacal in a certain way, and mm. he definitely presents with power and authority and all that sort of thing. But it's it's not quirky. It's not fun. I mm. guess that's the idea. It's a sterner one, but. Mm. Um, well, I mean, he is still using sharks as like a weapon. Well, exactly, and then they've got sharks. He's got like an iguana that sits on his shoulder with a diamond yeah. necklace, and it's just like <laughs> they don't know what they're doing. It's like they're trying to smash two things together here, and it's not really working. Uh, I don't know. I, I think he works. I think he's one of the better things about the film. And if you notice, because they had a hard time with Timothy Dalton doing sort of like the one-liner quips and the like in the previous yeah. film. They actually give Robert Darby more one-liners in this one than Timothy Dalton uh, at, at certain points because uh, they felt that he had a better flair for the witticism. Yeah, It felt odd whenever he'd like look to someone else and they'd say a line that you, j- you could just see Pierce Brosnan knocking out in the park. Yeah. That, that bit when, uh, when uh, the guy goes... What a terrible waste of money! <laughs> like, I, I, I was just sat there thinking, like, if this was Pierce Brosnan, he would have just gone like, gives new meaning to the phrase "blood money" or something like that. It, like, it would have just been, it would have just worked better. 
Yeah. This kind of awkward, stilted exchange between Bond and this sort of half sidekick. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love Sharky. He's great. Bond's, Bond and Felix's old friend that they've loved forever, who we've never <laughs> seen before. As it, was he not in a previous film? No, never. <laughs> the first time we see oh. him is when they're driving to Felix's wedding and it's just him, Bond, and oh, Felix. Because <laughs> I, I recognise the guy. I mean, I don't know why, but I knew him from something. I thought, oh, well, he'll have been in a previous Bond film, playing no. like one of the agents that helps him, you know, somewhere. And mm. they brought him back, like they brought Felix back. Mm. Honestly, I thought, yeah, he's been in this before. I couldn't place it, but I can't, you know, I don't remember any of it. Well, he's one of those sort of like, and this movie is full of them, actually. One of those just 80s actors. Yeah. Like, he's popped up in a lot of stuff. And when you look at his filmography, it is, oh yeah, National Lampoon's Vacation, Batteries Not Included, The Wizard, Loaded Weapon oh, 1. Oh, brilliant. Oh, we should do The Wizard on this show. I've never seen it. I mean, that is a fascinating relic of the 80s. It is mm. one of the weirdest films I've ever seen. Yeah. I did notice that, as well as Robert Darvey, we have the other Thompson uh, from Die Hard, Thompson and Thompson, oh, I don't know who playing... Uh, well, you know in Die Hard? <laughs> oh, yes. The, the FBI agents, Thompson and Thompson. Right. You know no what relation. I'm talking about? <laughs> I know Robert Darvey's in it. Robert Darby is one of them. The other one ah. is, let me find out his actor name because I can't remember off the top of my head. But he basically plays one of the DEA agents uh, ah. who is, you know, Bond comes up against him when he's like trying to get f- justice for Felix. And he's the one who's like, just leave it, just leave it. Oh, it's it. Grand L. Bush. That's the name, yes. Yeah. Is that a real name? <laughs> is that yeah, his Bond his name? name? Yeah. <laughs> In fact, I think I'm uh, Facebook friends with him. <laughs> Let me double check that. I think he he added me. <laughs> well, he's the other Tom Johnson. He's ah. the other Johnson in Johnson and Johnson, and this is the year after Die Hard. Anyway, um, yep, I'm friends with him. Very eighties. <laughs> you could have got him on the podcast for us. <laughs> we could have oh. got some inside scoop. Well, yeah, actually, I mean, how do you get more 80s than he was in, like, Lethal Weapon, Die Hard, Lethal Weapon 2, <laughs> License to Kill, Night Shift. Never worked since. <laughs> <laughs> he was in Forrest Gump. Yeah. Oh, that's very 90s, that. That's, and uh, I don't like that. Bleeding ex- into the next decade. The Exorcist 3. <laughs> oh, um, ooh, that's the one people like, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Or am I thinking of Exorcist 4? Oh, there's one of them that has like a mad cult of fans who say it's good, even though it's not. <laughs> uh, no, but I, I'm just, uh, while we're on the subject of this kind of like 80s action stuff, the music score for this film is written by a guy called Michael Kamen, who did the music for Die Hard. So, My name um... is Michael Kamen. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I, and I think that... <laughs> not combined... a lot of people know my music. <laughs> it's only supposed to blow your bloody ears off. <laughs> oh god, improv genius. But I, I think that that, as well as the fact that this film is mainly set in sort of America, Mexico, um, it's full of all these actors. It has this score. It does feel like it's deriving from other sources, other than um, yeah, what it has done previously. It feels less sort of like European spy thriller sort of thing, and more eighties action movie, which is, I guess, a trend that they were trying to chase. 
Cubby Broccoli came to me and he showed me a screening of The Living Daylights. <laughs> and he said, we want something like this. And I watched it and the volume was only at 16. <laughs> and I said, it was only 16. It needs to be bigger, the size of a tangerine. I'm running, I'm running out of... <laughs> I'm running out of what, what else is Michael Caine said? <laughs> do the bit where he do the bit where he dies in Kingsman. Oh yeah, you fucking silly fucking silly cunt. Uh I I I didn't particularly pick up that this film was like gone American. I don't know. It, oh, it felt yeah. it felt the same tone to me, just set in yeah. Mexico or whatever, I, huh. wherever it actually was. Yeah, that didn't bother me. It didn't feel that. It didn't feel tonally different in that sense. It just felt darker. But what about the, the whole yeah, like grimier? Oh, it's Felix's wedding day, and oh, I'm gonna retire. Well, he doesn't say that, but you know, it, it has vibes of that. Oh, he's only got three days until retirement, and now these terrorists are gonna come and spoil yeah, his life. I, I like that. You know what I really liked with this film oh. is I I felt like the James Bond franchise was kind of following a stale formula that went stale after like the third time mm. they did a film about James Bond trying to track down some kind of weapon of mass destruction that a, you know a, a madman's gonna uh, threaten people for money with. It just like it's just the same old shit every time, mm. and this is the first time I can remember watching one of these films that dared to shake it up a bit, do something new with it. It's still very much within the confides of a James Bond film and the 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 you know the tropes and the framework that we're used to, but it's not the same exact cookie cutter plot. It's ooh, James Bond quits and goes rogue because he's got a a personal mission he wants to carry out and there's a bit of ongoing continuity and character development coming into play for the first time ever. Well, no, the second (laughs) time since James Bond inexplicably got married out of nowhere. Um, (laughs) They even referenced that. Yeah, he was married once. That was a long time ago. I really genuinely liked the the premise, the setup, the concept of this film. Mm. But well, it's you know, <laughs> do, do they have to make them so fucking long? <laughs> Calvin, how, are any of these films like a sleek ninety minutes? Uh, one of the Daniel Craig ones is about hundred minutes. Mm. Oh, is that Quantum of Solace? Yes. Mm, okay. This but one is one yeah, of the longer I mean, ones. <laughs> Yeah, and it, this it is the plot. I felt was kind of it all made sense, but then it was sort of needlessly complicated. It's like got this side plot going on. This is happening mm. here. This is, and it's just like this could you could take half an hour of this, make it a sleek plot. He's after revenge, but then he's got to catch this guy. He's fucking mm. up other people's business. Like why? Why do you have to try and add something else into it? Well, that's that's the problem that they come across uh, quite a lot, and even Fleming himself in the books, like he has that every time they sort of 
bring it down to Bond, you know, as a vendetta against a villain or a villain as a vendetta against Bond. Like, the only thing that really matters is who's going to kill who, Bond or the villain. And they always have to introduce some kind of... It's like they did it in The Man with the Golden Gun where it was with Christopher Lee and it's like, okay, he's the dark side of Bond and he's got a vendetta against Bond. But he's also, Mm. you know, wanting to use solar energy to create powerful laser weapons and sell it off to the highest bidder sort of thing and it's same here with sanchez mm. it's like the i mean bond really wants to go after him because he you know killed felix's wife and maimed felix and that's not good enough he also has to have this plot about drugs and shipping them in containers to the far east yeah and and, and this <laughs> The thing is, though, that the whole opening... Se- okay, so the opening sequence mm. is Felix getting married and then they go off and quickly, you know, capture Sanchez mm. and get back in time for, for tea. But <laughs> it's... The whole thing is just... It feels like something bad is going to happen to Felix. Mm. <laughs> Something's coming up. Something. It's mm. like it's so obvious yeah. because it's just like, oh, Felix, you're my best friend ever. Mm. Yeah, thanks, James. I love you too. And it's just like... They're desperately trying to create a bond between these two so that it justifies the rest of the plot. Mm. I mean, I get that. But if you're going to bring a character back from a previous film, find one that we know he's bonded with. Why doesn't Money Penny get kidnapped or something? He has to go and rescue her. You know, like if you're going to make it personal. And M is that just like, oh, she's only a secretary. Great. We don't give a toss. Oh, so not, we're man. Not doing it. I'd love that. That'd be so good. Well, if Money Penny. <laughs> Yeah, because then you're really you're really deepening the James Bond lore and and expand like play like properly telling a like building a world and telling a story instead of just oh it's the next book in the young adult series of James like it, it's yeah it's well this is the thing with Felix like in the books he he and Bond are very much like good pals and you sort of read about them hanging out and they've got banter and all this kind of stuff but because not only does Bond has Bond changed four times uh, since the first film <laughs> where Felix introduced Felix is this is the first time a returning actor has come back to play Felix this guy did it uh, in the first Roger Moore Bond film, um, Live and Let Die. So they brought him oh, back. Yeah. But that doesn't help because you just never get any sense of rapport between the two of them. I think we're just told that they are good friends rather than have ever actually seen them. That. That's it. And it is just really hammered home. And then there's the wife as well, who's like he's really close with and she's like getting mm. off with him at her own wedding. Yeah. And and it is it, it, and it's just, it's laid on too thick so you know something bad is going to happen to them yeah um and then so it's it's just a bit too obvious and then bond goes rogue and you buy into that it's like okay but then it, it doesn't even feel that personal with sanchez do you know it's like because with sanchez it's business it's it, it was you know did he pull the trigger or was it you know I, I know he didn't literally shoot it but he just sent his goons out to deal with a problem mm. so but it's for bond it's really personal but for sanchez it's not and so it's not on mm. equal footing and that's why you have to bring in the fact he's destroying his business but mm. then the whole oh, just to jump forward to the end like by the end like the buildings are blowing up his his cocaine tankers are blowing up and he doesn't care. It's like it's just about getting away. I don't know. It just felt like the stakes weren't high enough. Like mm-hmm. it feels like in Bond, it has to be like, look, we need to stop. We need to press this button within the next twelve seconds, or you know, America's going to be wiped off the map by the Soviets. You know, mm-hmm. it's like it's got to have that level of stakes. 
So this being like, oh, it's like, you know, a drug dealer. And I know drugs were big in the 80s, you know, so. <laughs> but, you know, I don't, I don't know. It just never felt big enough. But if you're going to make it personal, you can get away with it being smaller, but it has to play. It has to work personally. And mm. I think if we if you could made it actually those two going head to head, it would have been all right. Yeah. I think that's very true. I mean, it's tough when there are points in the film where Bond is sort of uh, taken into Sanchez's confidence and he's sort of slowly planting seeds to try and turn him against his own men and all that kind of stuff. But there are very definite moments in the film where Bond could just kill him and he doesn't. And there's there's lots, that's a, got a good history in Bond as well. And I like that uh, to mm. a certain extent where, you know, Bond and the villain are kind of civil with each other mm, mm. and re- usually they the bad guy knows who he is but he's just like playing they're toying with each other and just trying to work each other out mm. and i think that can work very nicely mm. but here it doesn't quite play because i guess you just you never know like sanchez like knows who he is but then mm. just doesn't care and it's not like well don't worry i'm just plotting something it's like he's not plotting any i don't know what he's doing it's, mm. and i don't think that's because i missed it i think it's just because it's not there Mm-hmm. And well, I, I don't think Sanchez quite knows the connection until the very end when Bond brings out the lighter and he's like, don't you want to know why? And the Felix lighter. Yes, yes, the Felix lighter. Yeah, so that's put that. But again, that that again, that didn't play because because then he's he's what is it? He's going to go, oh, my God. You're a friend of sorry who I don't know I don't yeah. remember it's just you're a friend of that guy who care. arrested I don't, me I don't that give time a toss. yeah yeah uh, <laughs> like he doesn't care and, but any uh, yeah and that kind of very end confrontation between the two of them felt a little bit anticlimactic oh I love that confrontation that whole tanker chase at the end and the culmination he sets him on fire and it all blows up I think that's all really fantastic mm. actually. Well, I I have to say, I I think just from a technical standpoint, this is one of the best made Bond films today. Lovely bit of stunt work, yeah. Just Mm. in terms of like the camera work and how dynamic things are put together and the editing, Mm. it's it's just there's just so much more texture and detail going on in every scene of this film than I'm used to from this franchise. Mm. You know, just little things like um, when when Bond's talking to that shark guy. And uh, he kind of knows that he's telling bullshit, and then he walks off, and then at the end the camera pans down to show that wedding cravat on the floor with all the Mm. mopped up shit, and you're sort of left to infer that Bond noticed that and put it together. But it's Mm. it's quite subtle, it's not... Mm. You know, it, it it the way it's done, it's a really nice bit of just camera movement, and I just feel like in a previous Bond film they would have, you know beat you over the head with that or mm. it just would have been a bit stilted and no, it would have had a shot of Roger Moore raised eyebrow cut to a close up <laughs> <of the> cravat <laughs> and then come back to him and then cut to a dog somewhere sort of yeah. also and then, he, and then he would have said did I have a hat when I came in <laughs> uh, yeah yeah, and, and I think it's amazing that you're saying that because this is largely the same creative team that have done the past four films as well. Yeah. Screenwriters, mm. director, cinematographer, I believe. Yeah. Well, I I mean, from a writing point of view, it feels like it feels like hired writers who are bored of doing the same old thing finally kind of 
doing something that interests them for a change. Mm. And it also just feels like... I think what Alan was saying when we spoke about the previous film, that the, the or no, the film before it even, that, you know, technology of, of how we make films was evolving and, mm. you know, the way we can actually move cameras and edit things was becoming a lot easier and just you could make these more interesting, kinetic, compelling um, sequences. I don't think there's much in the writing that is drastically better than what we've had in the films before but it's just Mm. you know action sequences are written more or less the same way as they are in any bond film but they're just put together a lot more interesting for me certainly Mm. in in this film let's try and follow the plot a little bit we've done the opening sequence let's do the uh yeah let's do the opening uh credits and the music and such oh i I wanted to remember this this time because uh, I know Sol, you took issue with the opening credit sequence in the last uh, film. Yeah, this is the last one in the series done by Murray Spinder, who's been around more or less since no, the very start. He's the one who has a fetish for silhouette ladies, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. No, because he didn't do the opening titles for From Russia with Love and Goldfinger, which kind of brought in the whole idea of using scantily clad women. I, I have to say, this is a huge improvement over the previous film. For what? Just. Just as a night, I mean, it's it's still treading the same old stuff, but it's just such a nicer. Uh, it, it's just less boring. The opening credits, the song oh. isn't as good. It's fine. Um, the, the the only real issue I have with the opening credits here is like, it it really it really does feel so puerile that it's just a bunch of naked women dancing around. Do you, yeah. do, do you ever get embarrassed by these films, Calvin? Because <laughs> it, it does, it is like the equivalent of, you know, having like a, a, a Baywatch model poster on your bedroom wall as a 12 year old ne- boy. Yeah. Next to a picture of a Lamborghini. <laughs> yeah. Uh... And the poster from Scarface. <laughs> I, I, I can't say it bothers me too much. I just don't think this is the last. I mean, this is the last one before you know CG will play a, a big part in it, and so all the optical effects and stuff. I just think it just looks really dated and old-fashioned. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that as well. And I don't like the song. Yeah, I'm not funky a huge fan of the song. It, it just kind of washes over me. I, I, I honestly couldn't hum it for you now. I, I have no idea how it goes. License to kill. Got a license to kill. <laughs> license to kill. Boopy doop boop. Oh no, shrouding you. <laughs> Better not feel ill. If you're feeling sad, James Bond will be glad because his license be wobble. Oh dear. Yeah, because then after the um, opening sequence, we have all the stuff with Felix and Della's wedding. Uh, with Bond looking terrible, didn't don't you think he looks sort of like haggard and a bit? I mean, I know that he's just sort of been up in a plane and uh, <laughs> hung out of it and grappled onto another plane in midair, but still, he's just wish he'd had a haircut. I don't, I don't recall <laughs> thinking anything particular. No. Okay, bothers me anyway. Um, and then uh, we have this intercut with Sanchez being arrested, and then uh, one of the DEA guys or CIA, whatever they are, I think it's DEA. Um, Sanchez makes him an offer, and he has uh, he has helps him escape. Yes, yes, uh, which involves the death of no, 
the maiming of Felix and the death of his wife. Well, yeah, because he's uh, he's escaped, mm. he wants to go after the agent who was uh, responsible for his arrest, get some personal revenge. So he mm. kills his wife, or rather, he just leaves his wife with uh, Benicio del Toro. Actually, um, yeah, and uh, yeah. as he says, they they give her a nice honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't uh, even know what that means. Is that a pun? I don't get it. I I have no idea either. I think uh, it's just Benicio, isn't it? You, you do you remember Calvin? Um, or maybe it was you, Alan. One of you was in this class with me at uni. We had a lecture being given to us by uh, someone whose daughter had worked on the remake of The Wolfman, starring <laughs> Benicio del Toro. Oh yes. <laughs> And uh, he was just telling a story about how Benicio Del Toro had, you know, realised what a piece of shit the film was going to be and had just kind of checked out and was just doing everything he could to sabotage each take (laughs) to kind of see how it would end up in the film. And then there's this ballroom dancing scene where he just starts drifting around like a a Nicolas Cage-level maniac in the film. (laughs) And and apparently that was the result of that. And I feel like he's... I, I don't know, I wonder if he's doing that in every film I've ever seen him in. Because it certainly <laughs> seemed like he was trying to sabotage the takes he was in in this movie. Oh no, he he was really... He happily sits on the uh, special features and talks about the film. And this was like one of his first sort of big breaks, really. And apparently he brought mm-hmm. a lot to it. It was his idea to have like the Switchblade, <laughs> I believe. Um, and you know, I've he, never seen him look so young. Well, yeah, no, this is like, he did have that sort of like Malcolm McDowell, like you click your fingers and all of a sudden he's like, whoa, he's like middle-aged man now. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. But yeah, I guess this was one of his first big things before uh, A Usual Suspects, which was probably the thing that really made him. Oh, Um, yeah, definitely. But he's a really good henchman. I think he's really good and creepy. It's nice that he's kind of youngish and kind of boyish looking. We've not really had that before. I don't know, it just... To me, it just felt like, you know, one of the gang members from West Side Story. (laughs) Oh, well, I I mean, that's quite unusual for Bond. (laughs) Yeah. To me, it felt like I want to see the film where that guy gets promoted to the leader and is the main villain. Mm, Well, that'd be cool. Yeah. But imagine if if Christopher Walken hired him as his henchman in A View to a Kill. (laughs) How good would that have been? Uh, yeah, the sex scene with Roger Moore would have been a bit <laughs> awkward. Would it have been le- more awkward? Or would it have been less? Oh, no, actually, yeah, yeah. Good point. He uh, feeds Felix to a shark, which is taken from the Fleming book, Live and Let Ooh. Die. So in most of the Fleming books, it, Felix has like a peg leg and a hook hand because he's uh, <laughs> yeah been maimed early on in the series. Uh, <laughs> so he's a pirate? Yeah. <laughs> I, but that, so I know for a fact that Felix Leiter is a character, certainly in Daniel Craig universe. Mm. So is that a, a code name? Is that a different mm. Felix Leiter? Is he? Because he's it's his son. Got, it's a, it's like Blackadder, Alan. Well, Black is the operative word there. If it's his son, yeah. Daniel Craig is uh, is the son <coughs> of Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan yeah. is the son of. Uh, Timothy Dalton. <laughs> mm. It's a, it's a reboot, obviously. It's a lineage. It's a yeah. <laughs> I, but I just want to ask about Felix because they leave him alive. Which for to say that so much of the story. Oh, is I about hated it. Ve- yeah, because the story is about vengeance and uh, yeah. Uh, I did th- see a choice. They kill it like they they 
put him in that shark trap, and I was loving it. It's it's like this cr- completely sadistic mental trap. Everything that I want from a James Bond villain, like on par with the sort of funny stuff they do when they're spoofing Bond movies and cartoons. It's like <laughs> a like the weight of the food. It's like a pulley, isn't it? And, and yeah. on one end is uh, the the guy Felix, and on the other end is the shark food. Mm. It's like big chunk of meat. And there's mm. a bit of rope, and they know that when the shark eats enough of that, then he's going to be dangled down because mm. he weighs more than the meat, and he's going to get eaten, and then he's going to weigh less than the meat and go up, and it's going to be this prolonged, horrible experience. It's mm. it's really sadistic, and I loved it. I I didn't watch that scene, but I have watched the house that scoring the music built, and that is terrific. That's uh, <laughs> Michael Caine doing it. <laughs> Doing a commentary? <laughs> a, Jaws, a Jaws 4. <laughs> Deep cut reference. Did that, the only other Michael Caine quote you know just come to you halfway <laughs> during your talk there? But no, I, I was really disappointed because it, it just felt, it felt like, oh wow, they're killing off this guy. I do actually remember him from a previous film. That like that actually feels like there's some power to killing this guy off here. And then he doesn't even die. He's just in hospital yeah. after being bitten once by a shark. It's like, what? Yeah. It yeah. does feel like a bit of a cop-out. They, mm. they bring in the wife and kill her to make it feel a bit more substantial, I guess. Mm. But yeah, it feels cheap, doesn't it? Yeah, it really did. I think that's so why I, I was to Bond's uh, dead wife as well at one point. I think they're just trying to imply that there's some kind of uh, parallel here between him and Felix and there's, you know, Mm. maybe even some vengeance transference, but it's not really developed, so it's not there. I'm just kind of reading into it. No, I I think that came across. Oh, cool. Okay. So, I mean, it's up until about this point that I was really on board with this film and, like, it was probably my favourite James Bond film of the lot. 20 minutes in. Up until... I remember up until he quits... Oh, and then okay. after that, I just don't remember anything because I got bored. Well, that's a bit of an odd scene as well. I'm, um, uh, well, before that, him and Sharky go and um, mooch around that uh, marine warehouse and they kill the DEA guy. They send him into the shark and we have the terrible waste of money line. Yeah, I like that, yeah. yeah. Um, and then they take Bond to uh, Hemingway House and... M is there, and it's this really strange build-up where we see a load of cats and a figure <laughs> stroking the cats, and then he turns around and it's just, oh, it's just M. Uh, I, I don't know if we're supposed to think it's Blofeld. Uh, it's really weird. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's the idea. <laughs> I think he just likes fucking with Bond. He's just fucking <laughs> like, about. It's just funny, isn't it? You play prank pranks on your mates. And then he's he's like, there, like we've got to wait around for several hours for Bond to turn up. What can we do while we're cats. here? Well, I I saw a load of stray cats outside. Just round a load of those up. It'll be funny. Trust me, it'll be funny. You know, Bond, Bond is, with the cats, he hates them. <laughs> <laughs> he's got the PTSD with the cats. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's not bad enough that his uh, friend's wife died, but let's uh, bring in another flashback to his uh, previous adventures. Um... But M is uh, especially crusty here, and like people. Oh the, the, yeah, the guys even shoot at Bond when he like makes an escape, and it's yeah. weird that they're all so hostile to him so quickly. No, because he's going rogue, and they're the 
They're the government. They've got a they like they're following protocol. That's what they do. Yeah, I, like I last know. movie Bond was instructed to murder that woman in cold blood. And he didn't do it, but he got chewed out for it, didn't he? Yeah. I've been chewed out before. <laughs> I like that. I I mean, I I guess you know what it is. I I've never been I think maybe you're approaching this from this idea that like MI6 is um a lovely uh benevolent organization that we're supposed to be on side with and like oh hooray it's like it's you know what it's like it's like in classic star trek starfleet was gene roddenberry was insistent that starfleet uh the federation were was this you know part of this utopian society and he, he never let them do any sort of conspiracy stuff or stuff about corruption within the organization because he was like no we're past that in the future and then the second he died and jj abrams came in Everything they write now is about like oh the the federation it's corrupt and th- mm. there's a conspiracy and it's been infiltrated by a bad guy and and it's just I don't like that because it's it's like a cynical corruption of what that organization's supposed to stand for mm. and I think maybe you're coming to this film from a a place of joy and love where you love <laughs> MI6 and now you're seeing it being painted as like a bunch of cynical not particularly good people mm. and i like that i think that's an interesting take on uh the world but perhaps it doesn't play if you're a big fan of seeing the mm. umbrella gadget things and the pretend pens that <laughs> shoot spinach at you i think i think that's a good point i mean m himself has a line where bond sort of like tend said he's gonna tend this to isn't a me. fucking country club bond Yep, yep, that exact, well, not that exact line, but uh, yes, he does say this is not a country club 007, and, which is in, in contrast to, like, we've seen Bond sort of, like, hand in his resignation before, and it just either gets rejected or Money Penny intervenes or, you know, something like that, but it it has just always felt like, oh, right, you just go in and hand in a bit of paperwork and then you go, whereas this sort of more presents the idea, like you say, Sol, it's like, oh, it's not that easy, like, that this stuff is actually quite dark and... Uh, mm. There's a lot going on. Um, yeah, but I like that. It felt like an acknowledgement of the the fact that it isn't, you know, black and white and good v evil, and it's a bit more nuanced than that. I I really actually liked it. Yeah, cool. But that is the last bit I actually remember in the film, and after that, I just oh. kind of switched off. <laughs> so. Well, what was what was your next note? Because uh, the next chunk of film is a a load of stuff on the the boat of Milton Crest. He's got Sanchez's mole there, and Bond gets on. Uh, he meets her. I mean, how how far into the film is this? Because I I remember really enjoying this film by James Bond standards. <laughs> like it was probably my favorite Bond film for the first hour. So the mm. first half, nearly, of the film. Similarly to last time, I kind of clocked the runtime halfway through, and I was like, oh my god, really? I did something very similar, actually. Yeah, it was just like, this feels like it's wrapping up, mm. and it's like an hour left. Like, they, they really could have done this story in this amount of time. So, mm. But it, it, it yeah. seems to be... It seems to be a running thing with Bond movies when we talk about them. They're all so long. Mm. And I just don't think it's necessary. I, I think they... It's like the Broccoli Estate has got it in their head that these are, like, big event movies and they're one every they few are. years. And Yeah, but why does that mean it has to be ten years long? They're not even that long. I mean, most of them are around the two-hour mark. I've seen the new one's gonna be about nearly three hours. Yeah, two hours, forty minutes. Can't wait. 
But they're not doing, like, some huge world-building thing. They're not doing something where they have to make room for... Robert Downey Jr.'s dad to turn up for a scene to give him some closure from five <laughs> films ago. They're they're telling like pretty simple, compact storylines. So why are they so long? Well, that's it. They're, that's the problem, isn't it? It's not that they're two hours. It's that they're they sh- they've got an hour and a half plot and they've spread it over two hours, or they've just added in some extra material. They feel bloated and arbitrarily padded out because people have an expectation of these films have to be two plus hours, otherwise we're not getting our money's worth when we go to the cinema. Well, I I think uh, you're responding to something that is quite common in Bond films, actually. You tend to find that the, there is a sort of like a point in the middle where it shifts, whereas the first hour will be Bond is investigating this thing, or, uh, you know, and then, uh, or like in this film, it's just like he's just kind of getting leads. And then about halfway through the film, it changes. So it's not just, I'm going to kill Sanchez, it's, I'm going to kill Sanchez, oh, and foil his dastardly plot to smuggle yeah. heroin around the country. And you see it in, uh, in the other ones as well, in Moonraker. It's like the first hour of that is, right, the space shuttle's gone missing, gonna investigate this, and then that kind of goes away about halfway through because, oh, actually, this guy wants to destroy the Earth, so I need to focus on that now. Mm. I'd say it just feels like some shitty straight-to-video animated movie based on a cartoon where they've actually <laughs> just stuck two episodes together and kind of edited them <laughs> cleverly. Yeah. I mean, that that goes all the way back to Goldfinger, you know? It was like, uh, right, we need to investigate how this guy's smuggling gold, right? Looking into that for about an hour, and then about the hour point, it's like, oh, not only is he smuggling gold, he wants to get the gold out of Fort Knox. So it's just like an escalation of the villain's plan, really. Mm. It works in that one. <laughs> well, that's the formula that they try to stick with, so, yeah. Uh, let's talk about the Bond girls. Right. Uh, there's only two of them. Yeah, uh, because of AIDS, as we, as we established AIDS. in our last episode. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so you've got the uh, bad guys, yeah, Mole. Um, and I think this has got potential as a character because she's, you know, she's stuck with a bad guy, but she doesn't really like him, and she sort of feels a bit trapped there. So she's ripe for turning. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not a euphemism, but it'll work. <laughs> uh, but they've done that before, I'm sure. Um, mm. So. Yeah, that it just that whole thing feels a bit flat because we just don't do much with her. And then mm. the next, the second Bond girl that is established is so there's so much more to her, and works so much better that the first one just kind of gets left over as a bit of a hangover, and it even mm. has to be addressed in the last scene that she's a bit of a like oh shit I've created a problem here. Mm. Uh, but yeah, so the second one, Mrs. Bouvier, mm. uh, <laughs> whoever she is. Um, Pam Bouvier. <coughs> yes. Uh, who... is, is the first one Lupe Lamora? Yes. Uh, or is that someone else? Yeah. I, I, I've just noticed that she uh, she was in Spy Hard with Leslie Nielsen. Hmm. <laughs> About seven years later, she played seductress in Hotel Room. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Maybe it was a, a glamorous cameo. Yeah. Well, that's it. Neither of these two are actors; they're models. So you mm. know, I mean, that's Bond, I guess. Yes. Yes. So, but yeah, so it's Carrie Lowell who plays Pam Bouvier, uh, a much more solid character. I think she may be a feminist, guys. I don't want to. I don't want to scare Bond, uh, <laughs> but she's definitely got some very eighties ideas of being a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
So, but that really works because she stands toe to toe with him for quite a considerable amount of it, and they sort of feel like they work on the same level. And I have to say, for probably the first time ever, I felt real chemistry between the actors. Mm. Like those two, it feels like they have chemistry. And when Dalton's with the other woman, nothing. It's just flat and boring. But mm. with her, it feels like they're playing off each other. It feels like they're sparking. It might be to do with the characters. It might just do with the actors who are better with each other. I think mm. it's just chemistry between them, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I think that's probably the first time I've ever seen that in a Bond film. Huh. Um, and it worked. It really made it that whole thing a bit a lot nicer and and uh, th- but then they sparking off each other straight away they're getting there's the bar fight that's really sort of crap and not very well done but mm. then they kiss and i'm like what is this and then i was thinking hang on have they got a history it's like is this like one of those things where they were pretending they were kind of talking around they didn't know we really know each other but i was like no no they definitely didn't know each other so I didn't. Yeah. That didn't make any sense to me. It just kind of came out of nowhere. But by mm. the end, it felt justified that they'd sort of bonded and sparked off each other. But at the beginning, it was a bit weird. Mm. Um, but yeah, I liked her. I liked their dynamic. So that's mm. a tick. Yeah. Wow. Nice. I'm. I'm. I'm getting positive vibes from both of you. Really. <laughs> uh, in spite of the. It's all relative, the, isn't it? Well, yes. <laughs> but, uh, yes. Relative to the previous what fourteen films that we've looked at, fifteen. Okay. Well, that just about takes us up to where Bond goes to Mexico and the fictional Isthmus City, which is <laughs> difficult to pronounce. It's I S T H M U S. Isthmus. Is that's a real thing, Isthmus? Well, the city isn't real. What does it? Why do I know that word? An isthmus is a narrow strip of land that connects two larger land masses and oh. separates two bodies of water. Very literal name for a city. Yeah, but it is Mexico. I guess they didn't want to offend anyone in Mexico by implying that their politicians were corrupt and doing deals with drug lords. Uh, well, st- they are definitely Mexican. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, but it's around this point where Bond checks into the hotel and he's doing some snooping and we get the sort of the second part of Sanchez's plan, which is just exactly at an hour into it. So is this where you two were kind of uh, tra- t- uh, tailing off a bit? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> I mean, there's still stuff to enjoy here. Q pops up. He's uh, like on location. Yeah, they're trying to make, they're trying to bring Q in for a bit of comedy. Mm. Uh, and it kind of works it basically works but I guess they were worried that you know Dalton Mm. was too severe yeah (laughs) well I I like you in the Timothy Dalton ones actually they give him bigger roles in both than usual and they really play up his whole like eccentric tinkerer sort of thing I guess that's to play off Dalton because in the Roger Moore era he was very much like oh don't be ridiculous 007 and telling him off and all that kind of stuff and now he's just sort of a bit of a wacky uncle going uh his gadgets. Yeah, that's nice though. I liked yeah. it. I think they they needed a scene just near the end or something where it is just Q, uh, Q in the casino and he's got a little gadget that's manipulating the <laughs> roulette ball or something. So he's just winning time after time and he's got like a prostitute on his hand, arm and it's just like he's like living his best life. Do, was, do you remember <laughs> they did that in Diamonds Are Forever? Oh shit! Did they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got like a thing on his hand, which is like he's cranking all the slots, and it's uh, oh, jackpot. Every oh time. yeah, 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 yeah. They did, didn't they? He didn't have a prostitute there. Uh, no, no, that was octopusy. <laughs> <laughs> Eight of them. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, mm. but yeah, I quite liked that whole mm. bit. 
he comes in and gives him some gadgets. He uses the gadgets. They're just mm. perfect for what he needed. Mm. There uh, is doing this... a whole thing where they, the, the whole thing with him and the Bond girl, where she was like getting pissed off at him. Like they were in, like they like they were trying to play it off as if they were a married couple, and she was pissed mm. off because he'd shagged someone else. And it's like, mm. what, what's going on here? It didn't mm. didn't really. That whole thing just needs more work. Yeah. Can I ask, um, with with Q and the gadgets, why why are none of these things standard issue? Why is Bond <laughs> always trialing like a beta, you know, in development new thing that Q's tinkering with and hasn't quite been finished or has only just been finished and not trialed? Nothing <laughs> he makes seems to get through to. <laughs> Just being something. It's never like Bond goes into an armory and picks out a few things to go into the field with. It's just Q goes, "Oh, I've uh, I've made some chewing gum, and if you chew it and then blow it up, it goes all massive, and you can use it as a parachute." Do you want to give it a go? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, great. Well, in some of the ones he says, "Oh, we're doing this a standard issue now." Uh, things a bit like uh, I think the keychain in the last one is, and the briefcase from 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 Russia with Love. But I I do agree. Like a lot of the time, it is just, "Oh, we've got this thing this time, and you won't have it again by your next adventure." Yeah. So I hope it comes in handy. And and wouldn't it be nice to see Bond go into like a big like weapons room and pick out? A, a set of things that he's going to need for a mission once in a while, or or to be given a set of things like you'll get. Oh, I don't know. It, it's I suppose the idea is is often played like Q has developed things specifically for the mission, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's really just a screenwriting device. It's like, oh, we've got Bond tied up here. Oh, he needs a razor blade in his watch or something, so put that in Act 1. I mean, it's very much that. Are there any Bond movies where Q gives him a gadget and it doesn't work, but it kind of has like a an unintended funny side effect, and then Bond oh. uses the side effect to get out of the trap there at some point? There definitely will be. Uh... I'm trying to think. Like he gives him like a laser pointer, and the side effect is it gets really hot. <laughs> so he like, <laughs> oh, right. uses oh, it. No, he gives him a la- it gives him a laser, and he's trying to burn something out, but then a cat jumps up and knocks. Yeah, him yeah, out. yeah, 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 yeah. Perfect, <laughs> something like that. Uh, oh, then I, 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 there probably is. And he, he, he and it's uh, it's Blofeld's cat. He like tricks into jumping off a cliff, and then Blofeld's like, "Oh no!" and like falls off after the cat trying to rescue it. Something like that. Because I I feel like that would be like that's postmodern good writing. That's like for self aware audiences. You have to like go one step beyond and and what they're mm-hmm. expecting. Oh, you thought he was going to do that? Well, he's not. But we still set it up. Have you ever, has there ever been a scene where, like, one of the Bond girls, you know, he's just giving her a good scene too, uh, so she goes to uh, brush her teeth, and she borrows his toothpaste, and then she's like, oh, how is this, this tastes like Semtex, what's going on, what's that? <laughs> uh, no, no. I'm trying to think, there's definitely a time in Live and Let Die where he's using his magnetic watch to try and uh, lure a rowboat towards him, but... It's oh, yeah. actually tethered, so he can't actually get out that way, so he has to jump across the crocodiles instead. Yeah. So there have been times where they've not necessarily worked on the first go, or for that situation. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think of one where they've... Yeah, where it's 
He's not used it right and it's had an unintentional consequence, but I can't. But I mean, that, what I'm talking about is like that bit with the that bit with the crocodiles. He tries to pull the rowboat with the magnet mm. and then the crocodile comes at him and he realises, ah, and he like catches the glare of the sun on the watch and like blinds <laughs> the crocodile with it. And then he can just be like, oh, cue overcomplicating things again. Or... <laughs> so there's one subplot that I think could have been taken out of the film completely. Uh, I think Alan alluded to it earlier on. Uh, the ninjas who <laughs> <laughs> in Mexico. I'll tell you what I liked about this whole subplot is that it states very clearly that because Bond has gone rogue, he's fucking up other people's things. Mm. Like, other, the good side. Like, he, like he, this guy's like, oh, I've been setting this up for years, I was finally getting on the inside, and you mm. fucked it up. And then they all die. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that's, that. it really brings home to Bond that he's like, he's fucking shit up and he has to put it right. Yeah. And I, I mean, guess... I don't know if he does put it right, he just kills everybody, so yeah. I don't know if that counts, whatever. Just yeah. creating a power vacuum in the drug cartels, but sure, that'll be fine. Well, and there's a British guy there as well who's there to sort of like take him back, uh, who dies as well. Um, oh, yeah. I, and I suppose that the purpose of the scene is to prove to Sanchez that Bond isn't involved with these people trying to kill him, and it sort of he presents himself as like, oh, I was captured by these people, and Sanchez takes him in and sort of looks after him for a while. Yeah. Um, so I guess it serves that function. Uh, I don't know. It's just, it's weird. It's random. It's strange that we go on this little tangent with this ninja woman who's like told by her boss to like go and avenge everyone or something. And avenge then we have a, me! <laughs> and then we have a couple of moments of her doing flips and stuff before someone just shoots her. <laughs> Ninjas, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really? And then uh, Bond wakes up in uh, uh, Sanchez's palace, and did either of you notice the weird, like, fish with human faces? No. Oh, right. I thought thought you'd have picked up on this. Oh, not a real fish, a statue. Oh, yes, sorry, yeah. Yes, yes, I did see that, yeah. Yeah. Monty Python, meaning of life, sort of thing. Uh, It's just to make him feel disoriented, I think. Yeah. And this is the bit where he's sort of like turning Sanchez, you know, he's sort of planting seeds like, oh, that uh, that Milton Crest guy, he's uh, he's a bit of a wrong and inty. And Sanchez yeah. is like, hmm, yes, maybe he is. He is a bit dodgy, actually, you couldn't mention it. <laughs> <laughs> and then he starts to sort of like kill off his own people, uh, mistrust his own people, that sort of thing, so... Yeah, I kind of like that. I think you you can make a lot more of that. That Bond is that's Bond's plan. His infiltration plan is to kind of create division within the ranks. Yeah, mm. yeah. Like it doesn't have to be Bond's plan is to get close enough to him to sh- shiv him. You mm. know, it's like I like I like it when Bond is like using his brain as well as his brawn. You know, mm. Mm. yeah. You don't get a lot of that. No, no. What did you think of uh, Milton Crest's death, by the way? That's always struck me oh, as like... I took a... a screenshot of it. It was amazing. I'm putting it on the Instagram later this week. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, when, when this episode goes out. Yeah, yeah. I got a great shot of it. I mean, I'll send it to you so you can see it. <laughs> His uh, head exploding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that moment does feel so tonally out of place with the rest of the film. It's... Yeah. 
it, 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 the only thing that we've ever had in the franchise akin to that before is when that guy gets inflated like a balloon, like in like, <laughs> yes. out of Looney Tunes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that one felt more... Uh, that one kind of gelled with Live and Let Die, whereas this feels very uh, strange. I don't know, it's uh, sort of cartoony, sort of horrific. Uh, yeah. I don't think it gelled in Live and Let Die either. <laughs> commenting yeah. on how out of place it felt to have this weird Evil Dead style... Uh, death scene, yeah. but yeah, it it does feel very um, yeah, surprisingly graphic for mm. for the franchise and cartoony. Yeah, <laughs> it's, weird. it's weird. It's a strange blend. It's like a Joe Dante special effect. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and then that sort of leads us into the climax, I suppose, which is. Uh, Based at this really cool facility. What did you think of the sort of uh, villa, the, like where Sanchez is? Oh, uh, God, I've just remembered drugs. the hmm? whole like preacher guy thing and that whole yeah. that whole bit. That yeah, we're just at that now. But like they set it up that you got this, you got this <laughs> preacher guy. Sorry, I'm just looking at the photo Alan sent. From the... <laughs> he looks like Brian Butterfield, you know that <laughs> Peter Serafinowitz character. <laughs> And then the whole the whole drug facility that's thirty two million dollar setup um, gets destroyed because Bond throws like one glass of like <laughs> flaming alcohol yeah. across the room. Tips and, over like, a the burner. They've <laughs> obviously <laughs> really they've really cut corners on the whole fire safety thing <laughs> to get that thing up for thirty two million dollars. Is cocaine flammable? Well, the the thing is, the whole point of what they're doing is that they're penetrating it into petrol yes. somehow and that's yeah. how they're transporting it without it being yeah. noticed so i guess there's a lot of petrol around. Hmm. makes sense <laughs> does it yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then they we spend a... a long time showing a little experiment uh, yeah. like going oh and this it turns into this and then it becomes this and it bangs with the petrol where mm. they could just go We've come up with a way to hide cocaine in petrol. <laughs> I guess it's fine, you know. We don't uh, need to know. <laughs> but then we have the excellent tanker chase, big climax of this film. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's great, really well choreographed. The explosions are really, really cool. They're really good and fiery. There are lots of orange. I don't know how they got that particular blend uh, of explosion, but I think it, it, it looks really cool. <laughs> Maybe it was just like really hot. In the place where they were filming it, so it's yeah. Maybe explosions just look better in the heat. They probably just color corrected the footage. I don't think that I don't think that existed in 1989. <laughs> sure, did you painted you painted the film stuff? <laughs> yeah, rotoscoping, isn't it? Yeah, yes. I, I I must admit this did do a lot to uh, regain my attention at this point. It, oh right, it reminded me of um, the Fast and the Furious movies. But <laughs> not in a, not in a bad way. Because <laughs> I realise that could sound like a diss. Yeah, it's good old school stunts and the and the yeah. there's a lot of helicopter stuff and plane stuff and all that stuff. I like when she flies the aeroplane into a narrow uh valley and it, mm. it takes the edges of the wings off. <laughs> I think it's a really great showdown. Very, very cool. I think the, the the whole tanker chase bit is all fine, but the, the very end, it just yeah, it just feels, but it, it feels anticlimactic, like the actual confrontation between the two of them. But that's because it doesn't feel like it's been built up properly. It's not the for Bond, it's personal, but this other guy doesn't give a toss, and mm. it, the stakes aren't there, and so that's why it just didn't quite work for me. The the chasing and the action and all that's fine, but mm. um, 
Is that actually the end? As with all Bond films, it feels like there's about four different endings. Uh, no, no, that really is the ending, because everyone's dead, apart from, well, the, the coder at the end, where he's on the phone to Felix, who is remarkably perky in his hospital bed to say that he's lost a leg and they a wife. They haven't told him about the wife yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, he's they like, just, well, don't, don't bring it up to while he's recovering. We'll just say she's in another room. He has this, like, pretty blonde nurse who comes in to fluff up his pillow, and he's like, oh, hello. And it's like, <laughs> oh, all right, okay. Yeah. Well, I think I think the Bond writers are really anti-marriage. Like, <laughs> bad things happen when you get married, but it's fine yeah. if you just have a bit of floozy on the side. That's <laughs> that's the message here. Yeah. So does it end? Is there not a little? Does he not get taken back in by M and they hug? Well, I, I think Felix on the phone says something like, oh, I've spoken to M and he's got a job for you or something. So it just implies that he's going to be taken back. But then they have the thing about, oh, which Bond girl he's going to choose? Is it going to be the uh, Talisa Soto or is it going to be uh, Pam Bouvier? And so Q's there. The next film, the next film presumably starts with um, M being like, come on in here, Pierce. Uh, we'd like to give you a promotion. Uh, a new openings uh, come up. <laughs> uh, the old guy quit, so uh, we need someone to take over the the James Bond position here. <laughs> well, yeah, but the the M has changed considerably as well. So yeah, well, they point that out. Uh... I mean, M actually is a code name, right? Yes. I mean, obviously, he's not just called M, but <laughs> but I mean, M actually literally is, is you know, it's not like short for Morris. It's short uh, for Marco. No. Marco Kane. My name. <laughs> Isn't bloody M. <laughs> Hate the uh, winking fish statue that we end the film with. Do we? I don't, I don't remember a winking fish. Like, because Bond jumps in the pool and then he pulls Pam in. Yeah. And then Talisa Soto's going to go off with the mayor of the city for some reason. Which <laughs> is probably a better idea for her. Uh, but yeah, and then we pan over to a fish and then it winks. A statue oh, really? of a fish. Yes, it's horrible. But it actually winks. Yes. I don't even remember that. I might have, might have already turned away in disgust. <laughs> <laughs> in disgust, I've I've been hearing positive things from both of you on this one. If you're both gonna give it like threes now or something, well, I was good. Yeah, I mean, do we want to rate? Are we ready for that? We've talked about everything, haven't we? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Well, I gave it a six. Ah. Which is the same as The Living Daylight. So I would say I prefer this. I like the darker tone. I like the sterner Bond. I think it's more akin to what we get with Daniel Craig. Um, but it was obviously before, too too early. It was way ahead of its time. But yeah, I I, I quite enjoyed it. But it, yeah, it just sort of outstays its welcome. All the usual flaws you expect with Bond films. Uh, mm. Yeah, so it was, it was sort of like, it's all right. Mm. Both of these films have been better than the Roger Moore ones, put it that way. Oof, goodness. <laughs> well, for me, it's it's a solid seven, which is quite something for me when it comes to this film. This was one that I always had a really hard time with when I was a kid. For the longest time, I would have cited like this, along with Thunderball, as being the official series at its absolute weakest. But the, the last couple of times that I've watched it, I've actually started coming around to it a lot more. I think there's a lot here to really enjoy. I think, um, I think it's better than The Living Daylights, actually. Um, oh God! It, there's no question; it's better than the. <laughs> yeah. That represents peak bottom. <laughs> Oof, goodness, I do just kind of wish bottom that is a Bond girl. <laughs> <Come on. laughs> 
but I think I think it's a shame that the Timothy Dalton era didn't actually start with something along these lines. It's the Living Daylights is this weird sort of bridge halfway house between Roger Moore and this, and I think that this is much better. I think good Bond villain conflict. Uh, yeah, I think in spite of its flaws that we've talked about, I I have a really good time with this one these days. Seven out of ten. Why did you dislike this one so much? Uh, I I think, especially when I was a kid, I think probably the tone of it... uh, I never gelled very well with Timothy Dalton. I always preferred Roger Moore as a kid. And he is, like, when you're, like, nine, ten years old, you know, Roger Moore's just sort of like a funny, cool bloke who goes around and kisses a lot of ladies, whereas Timothy Dalton... it wears off pretty quickly. By the time you hit 14, it's like, oh, my God, this guy's a douche. I think the tone, and also just that it feels somewhat like it's Bond trying to do Die Hard. It's trying to be that 80s American action flick. Yeah, but how good would that be? Oh, imagine that. Bond trapped in a skyscraper. <laughs> going up against Alan Rickman. That'd be amazing. Hello, Mr. Bond. I mean, if we really want to know why you hated it, I'm, I'm sure we can just drop a clip in here. I've changed. <laughs> the young Calvin. <laughs> this is what happens when you first when you start drinking. You're not used yeah, to it. Yeah. I didn't know what I was you. doing with alcohol back then. Um I I genuinely really enjoyed this one in, Good God. in the way that I think most people do <laughs> for the first hour. <laughs> like the way I think most people enjoy Bond films. I was just getting that from it. Hmm. Um but then, as we've said, it just I just tuned out. It just got drawn out and dull. and ugh. So, I mean, it's definitely one of my favourites to date. Um, there's probably more that I like about this one than any of the Bond films to date, but I, I, I will acknowledge there are better-made Bond films out there that don't kind of do it for me on a, a as visceral and personal a level as this one was kind of working for me. Um, so I give it a 6 out of 10. I, I think a lot to like, a lot of positives. Um, I'm surprised that it's seen as a weaker entry in the franchise, to be honest, because I think it's by far and away uh, some of the best stuff that I've seen from it so far. Especially after that piece of shit Living Daylights. <laughs> it's certainly been reappraised uh, recently, mm. definitely. it's It's got its fans. And especially since Daniel Craig took over as well, I think Alan's spot on. It, this was kind of ahead of its time, Ahead really. of its time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, Sega Dreamcast of, of the James Bond <laughs> franchise. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, how do we feel about Timothy Dalton as Bond, then? This is the end of his tenure. Hmm. Brief two-film uh, stint. Mm. The first one feels... Like yeah, trying to cram him into a different role. Mm. This one feels more suited to him. He plays that sinister, severe thing better. I would, and I think it suits him better. But obviously, Bond audience wasn't ready for that. Is mm. that right for Bond? Because even when you say 
if you compare that to Daniel Craig, it's a different era, but also Craig still, Craig has a charm that Dalton does not. Mm. Well, I mean, my my takeaway from it, really, I, I think Timothy Dalton is the worst Bond that I've seen so far. Mm. Um, but the reason for that is that he is quite likeable. And I don't think it works when James Bond seems like a nice man. <laughs> hmm. <I don't> <laughs> it just doesn't it doesn't quite play. He just seems like a reasonable guy that you'd get along with in this film, whereas um, uh, yeah, he always comes a, I don't know, he seems I mean in this one is yeah, it's very dark, like he's angry. Yeah, but understandably angry. Yeah, but yeah, but he's not. He's he's like you can understand where he's coming from. He's a reasonable character. He's not just out there like raping women and slapping them and stuff like Sean Connery. I'd rather go to the pub with Roger Moore than Timothy Dalton. <laughs> well, actually, I'm curious to know you for you two guys. Uh, we've had four Bonds so far. If you had to rank them from like least favorite to favorite, regardless of the film quality, just sort of like them as a as a person to watch. Uh, them as James Bond or them as someone I want to watch in a film? Ooh, uh, them as James Bond, let's say that. Well, it's definitely Connery for me. I feel like Lazenby, I've got no handle on what he's doing, so I can't really feel like I really say anything about that. Mm. Roger Moore does his thing and it works at the level it's playing at. I'm fine with it. It's just not particularly to my taste. I would say... Ooh, I think I would prefer Dalton over more. I think I would pref- I would like to see more of that and mm. see where it went and let them experiment with that a little bit. Whereas Roger Moore was just like, here's the thing. Let's just do it seven times. Hmm. I... It depends, like, ask me um, who I prefer as Bond out of Sean Connery and Roger Moore and it'll, de- it'll change every day. Mm. Like depending on what mood I'm in, I, I don't really have a preference between the two. Mm. Um, I think they both have positives and you know negatives as Bond. Um, but yeah, it's definitely between one of those two as Bond. Mm. Then I'd probably go Timothy Dalton, George Lazenby. I don't have a problem with any of them particularly. But if we're just talking as like an actor and a screen presence and someone I'd like to watch and stuff, then. I mean, I don't know, it's probably Timothy Dalton's my favourite. I don't know. Maybe mm. Sean Connery. See, I think I, Dalton's yeah. missing that in these films. And I have seen him in other things where he's got a bit of a sparkle, but there's no chance. Oh yeah, I mean here, I'm talking about it? I'm talking about the actor as a whole rather than what we get out of this film specifically. I don't think he's a good bond. When I said about the Bond girl and how they felt like there's a real chemistry between them, that's when I saw Timothy Dalton come alive, like actually smiling, like mm. seems like he was having a good time. Like, the actor, not just the character. And then there's so little of that in these two films. And I think that's a shame. As much as I like the more serious tone, you need to balance that with the lighter moments and let it, let the sparkle come through of, this, of, a, of, the, of your film star mm. that Connery always had. Moore doesn't really have it, but he, he, he can fake it, so it's all right. Um, yeah, that's what you need. You know, That's what uh, Bond needs to have. Mm. A little, a quick sort of preview of our next Bond episode, which I believe is also our next episode. Uh, unless look, you lucky Bond fans, unless, unless coronavirus unless, takes hold unless, and uh, uh, we all die. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, not over that. If if Eon go, this is no time for no time to die. <laughs> which mm. they will if this legitimately going to ha- hamper the box office to a significant amount. 
They will just pull it. Well, I mean, we're recording this just after The Invisible Man had a very good weekend at the box office, despite all of the coronavirus stuff. As of recording, we've still got a good few more weeks to go until Bond premieres. Uh, unless things get significantly worse, which I, I'm assuming... Yeah, but they will. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's whether or not the media want to sort of kick up a fuss about... Oh yeah, let's be clear. As as we record, the coronavirus is not a threat in any real way whatsoever <laughs> to any to uh, to to on a on a national level, on a pandemic level. Yeah, but it, I mean, it is definitely going to get worse than it is now. Mm. And whether or not it gets to the projected like what is it one one fifth of the workforce off sick at once or something that they're anticipating yeah uh be that be that due to self-isolation and what have you rather than actually contracting the virus obviously but Mm. um yeah i think it will have a significant uh impact on well the world economy yeah but there's a big difference between not going to work and not going to the cinema because you (laughs) because you're self-isolating and kind of pretend you you don't want to go to work (laughs) <laughs> but it's hard to uh, it's hard to get people to go out to the cinema at the best of times, and it is a, a a hot box for you know, you know, you cough in the cinema, it's swirling around there, everyone's breathing in those coughs. But on the other hand, uh, who goes to the cinema? Well, young people, isn't it? Eighteen and below, and and they don't give a shit. Like coronavirus ain't gonna harm them. It's only gonna <laughs> hurt people who are like seventy and above. Mm. So Sean Connery. <laughs> this could take out the majority of the Bond fandom. <laughs> if we have, if we get a true plague, like a proper pandemic that that does play on age, you know, plays on uh, you know those less healthy, and we wipe out the older generation, it change the whole thing. Like we, Donald Trump won't win. Uh, it could be the end of uh, <laughs> could be the end of asthmatic Bond. Remember him, that one time character. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't think he even made it into the final edit. <laughs> he was so insignificant. He didn't make it up the stairs. <laughs> Speaking of character uh, guests that we have on the show, this is the last film to be produced by Cubby Broccoli in the series. So Cubby shepherds in Goldeneye, but uh, is he involved or has he just been like? Is yeah. he just like a kind of decrepit old man who's not allowed to make any decisions anymore? Well, I think he, he's he's consulting. It's uh, Michael G. Wilson, who co-produced the last three films with him, who's his stepson, uh, who was wow. also co-writer on some of them, and uh, then his uh, biological daughter, Barbara Broccoli, who's been a first assist, uh, uh working on the uh, second unit uh, stuff. So she they take over as producers, and they are still producers to up to no time to die. Was he um was he just sat on set in a wheelchair with a bald cat stroking it? <laughs> and then Bab dropped him down a chimney because he was making too much noise. I think he will have given he certainly uh I mean they pursued Pierce Brosnan, could be pursued Pierce Brosnan for uh, Bond before <laughs> Timothy Dalton. So I just imagine him running after Pierce Brosnan <laughs> <laughs> along the street. Going, come back, I want to hire you. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a way, that's what they did, because it's sort of like, oh, okay, well, Timothy Dalton just doesn't want to do any more, actually. Uh, he feels like his time has passed. So Was that what just... it was? Like, that is, it, what was 
what was the ending to the Dalton era? Was it because was he only contracted for two films then? Was that? Uh, well, no, he was contracted for three. And he told them to go fuck themselves. Uh, no, no, wasn't no, no. there wasn't there a big delay getting the next yes. film together? So he was he went off and did some other shit, and then couldn't be asked coming back or something. Is, yep, is that? That's exactly it. There were legal problems. There were legal problems with uh, MGM, but they were planning on like doing the third one. And uh, yes, it was going to be released in 1991. They had this like two every film every two year thing going on. But uh, yeah, it was just the rights to Bond are tied up with MGM and United Artists and various companies and stuff. So there was just a load of trouble, which meant that by the time they actually did get around to uh, preparing the next Bond film, he just didn't want to do it. So, uh... Are you allowed to just not do it if you're in a contract? Is that is that how it works? Well, I think they like the period that it covered it expired. I assume so. Something well, like that. There, there was something, or like... they were just gracious enough to let him take other roles because it was getting delayed. Maybe mm. I mean, there's often a lot of goodwill that gives actors wriggle room in these things. I read that. Um... After such a long delay, they basically wanted him to do more than just another one. So if he'd have done another one, he would have fulfilled his contract, and that's basically all he wanted to do. And they said, after this length of time, we kind of need you to do more. And he was like, nah, I'm all right with that, actually. So, uh, yeah. So, and then they went back to Pierce. Yeah, which we will see next week. Yes. Very excited for that one. Yeah, and you listeners, you have me to thank uh, exponentially because this was go- we were going to be looking at the 60s spoof Casino Royale originally before I intervened so <laughs> just thank me for that uh, yeah we're going straight into the Brosnan era yes we'll, we'll get to it eventually but I thought for the, for, the, for the big Bond episode before the latest Bond film I think GoldenEye will be a much more appropriate one to talk about I think it's exciting this because all bets are off. Like, I might actually enjoy the next Bond film. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's actually been a long time since I've watched the Brosnan films oh, okay. uh, with any kind of uh, notice. But, yeah, and I'm I'm looking forward to this. There's a six-year gap. It's the biggest gap we've had. Uh, but it's quite a significant gap as well in terms of, you know, the end of the Soviet Union and all, and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Time's really changed. Technology has changed dramatically. It's like film changed quite a lot, and I'm really looking forward to see how they embrace that, how they take it on. Yeah, the, a new bond. The nineties were a, a time of unbridled optimism. And I think yeah. that'll be fun to go back to. And I think it's going to be. And I, obviously, I've seen the film, so there's probably some memory coming in here. But the the, the Brosnan films are a bit more fun, uh, mm. a bit more Roger Moore, I guess. But yeah, like it, things aren't quite as like you know what we could die any minute, you know. Then nine eleven happened. I guess that changes things. But uh, you know, yeah, the nineties were that period where it was like, oh, we can have fun with you know people trying to kill us because it's not really a real threat mm. at the moment. And you know, mm. we, we don't. It's pre-born. We don't have to like actually punch people in the face all the time. It's just going to be like throw a handkerchief at them and it blows up. It's cues and they do an explosive handkerchief. Hmm. Uh, yeah, something like that. I'm going to be very interested to yeah talk about it. I think it's going to be a I think it's going to be a good one. <laughs>